Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast on the Western Front Association with me, Dr. Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 19th of October 2020 and this is episode 180. On today's Dispatches podcast, I talked to Neil Gilhooley about his recent book on the service of the 9th Battalion Royal Scots during the Great War. This book is published by Pen and Sword. Hi Neil, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Thank you, Tom. I'm an engineer. I was born in Edinburgh, but I now live in Nottingham with my wife and two children. I became interested in the Great War because my grandmother had a medal and a photograph of her father, who had been a dandy knight in the, in the First World War. But uh, until recently, I'd only read John Keegan's book on the First World War. That was my sum total of knowledge. And so why did you write a book on the dandy knight? I think in, in common with a lot of people, when the centenary came round in 2014, I was interested in uh, relatives' participation in, in the First World War, and I looked to see if somebody had written a book about the Knights Royal Scots, and, and nobody had. So I could find odd scraps of information, and that started to, to gather and build until it became a, a more sizable amount of, of information. And Irene Moore, whose uh, grandfather was a, a dandy knight and who edited this book, encouraged me to uh, contact Pen and Sword about getting it published. Tell us about the, the 9th Battalion Royal Scots before the war and about their formation and where they were based. They're uh, an Edinburgh battalion and they were formed because of the Boer War. So in December 1899, the, the Highland Brigade suffered very heavy losses at Magersfontein in South Africa. This created a great uh, wave of patriotism and people joining the army and people joining the volunteer corps, which had existed for 40 years at this point. James Ferguson, who was an advocate in King's Council in Edinburgh, wanted to form a, a brand new battalion of the Royal Scots Volunteers in Edinburgh, and he wanted to form a Highland battalion. He was from Aberdeenshire himself, uh, and he wanted to attract people who, in theory, came from the Highlands or were descended from Highlanders who were in Edinburgh to join a new, a brand new battalion as part of this great increase in enthusiasm in the armed forces. And so, in 1900, he was the battalion was formed. It had to be formed as part of the Queen's Rifle Volunteer Brigade, who already existed in Edinburgh. But there were there were frictions almost immediately with the, the Colonel Commandant there, who refused to cash some of their checks. And so, in the following year, they were instituted as a, an independent battalion, the Ninth Battalion of the Volunteer Force of the, of the Royal Scots. Um, they didn't, of course, serve in South Africa, but they sent some 45 men to South Africa for the Boer War. And how did they become known as the Dandy Ninth? Well, I'm not entirely sure. It's quite clear, I think, that in their hunting Stuart kilts and their scarlet doublets, they look very different from the, uh, the riflemen in the Queen's Royal Volunteer Brigade, who were in, in black uniforms, known as Black Brunswickers, so that the contrast was very stark. There was a there was a comic opera in 1898 called the Dandy Fifth. I think this name was applied to other units. There was a Boer war a Boer commando called the Dandy Fifth, who were dressed in rags by the time they were captured in Cape Colony. So I think that idea of the Dandy as a as a smartly attired or sarcastically in the, in the commando sense uh, as a term was, was in use. I don't think James Ferguson, who founded the battalion, fond of this term, but 
Colonel Blair, who succeeded him and who was the commanding officer in France, wrote to say in the newspapers to say that he uh, that they were very proud of this title of the Dandy Knight. And whereabouts was their drill hall in Edinburgh? When they, when they originally started as part of the QRVB, so their drill hall at Forest Hill, then they opened a drill hall at Weems Place in the New Town, which was a very nice part of the New Town. And then um, Colonel Clark, the second colonel, funded a brand new drill hall, which is still there on um, East Claremont Street, which is still part of the Army Reserve now. So tell us about what happened in 1908. Was the original volunteer unit actually subsumed into the territorial force as a whole unit, or was it amalgamated from other volunteer battalions? It, it came across as a, as a complete unit. They all had to be renumbered, fitting with the regulars who are now all part of the same organisation after the 1908 reforms. And the 9th, for some reason, kept kept their number, even though there was a more senior unit. The 8th Volunteer Battalion became the 10th, became more junior. And I, I'm not sure if that's because this, this idea, this identity of the Dandy Knights was so entrenched that, that they managed to carry on as, as with the same number in, in the new organisation. But to, so I didn't answer your full question. Royal Scots were recruiting from Lothian. Some of those volunteer battalions were recruiting specifically from Edinburgh and, and the Knights was recruiting from Edinburgh. And did the Royal Scots traditionally have that sort of Highland uh image or were they more of a lowland formation they, they entirely saw themselves or ferguson saw them as a highland battalion and that their membership whom you weren't supposed to be able to join without uh, nomination was going to be of, of highlanders who were living in edinburgh or immediately descended from from highlanders and there was some talk that even the companies that made up the battalion were going to represent different clans and all this kind of rather 19th century idealized uh, view of, of the past but um, i suspect almost throughout there would have been mostly lowlanders urban men clerks and so forth living in edinburgh perhaps with no connection to the highlands whatsoever and that brings me to my next question what type of man joined the uh... Uh, territorial force as a sort of part-time civilian volunteer before the First World War. It's often said, Ferguson said it, but other other commentators have said it too, that there were a lot of intelligent young men who recruited into the battalion. They prided themselves on being able to recruit the best from Edinburgh. But of course, I suppose many battalions would say the same. They had a lot of recruits from the good Edinburgh schools, like George Watson's and, and Daniel Stewart's, and there were a lot of clerks. And so the company organisation was actually based about uh, a company of, for men working in the law offices who had to work around the sitting times of the court, or men who worked in printing works who had to work around their shifts. And there were, age company was the university company which the university attempted to boycott. But that was a strong representation of students, a lot of medical students and so forth. So a lot of intelligent young men, but also from a, a wide spread of, of the population, drummer boys coming in at, at 15 and 16. And then to train them up, they had permanent staff. They had colour sergeants who were men typically from the Gordon Highlanders or the Cameron Highlanders who'd served in South Africa, who'd served in the Northwest Frontier or the Sudan. They made excellent uh, non-commissioned officers out of their men, gave very good training, were very important to how the battalion developed and was trained and was capable of performing in the, in the First World War. Although a lot of young recruits did go to the First World War with a, a broad vocabulary of copiers and dongers, which wasn't really suited to describing France and Flanders. What sort of sort of social class did the majority of men come from? I, I think there was a spread. I, whether there was um, bias toward those better off or not, I, I, I couldn't say for certain. Did the battalion have a membership requirement for uh, pre-war pre-war recruits? They, they did start off with firstly a need to 
have been nominated by existing members, but also they had to pay subs. So although they were paid uh, as part-time soldiers and when they went to camp they were paid, there was a requirement for them to um, pay into, um, into the battalion. And this had to be dropped later on when uh, recruitment was weaker. After the initial enthusiasm around the Boer War, the numbers of the uh, territorial did steadily fall um, until we get to the First um, World War. Did the sort of the character of the men who joined uh, the unit during the war change uh, as the as the conflict progressed? Did they um, cease coming from the Edinburgh area? Well, certainly at the start of the war, I think in August '14, when there were huge queues to recruit, they would have had a very similar mix, I suspect, to the pre-war volunteers. But as the war progressed, of course, things changed a, a good deal. A lot of these intelligent young men were leaving for commissions. So from the first 500 men on the medal roll, a really remarkable 43% received a commission. So they went on to command their own platoons and companies and so forth elsewhere. Drafts of new men were coming in initially from Edinburgh, although even in 1914, there was a company uh, recruited in Manchester. The big change, of course, comes as it does for all of these battalions in 1916 with conscription. And that breaks the link between the recruiting areas, loading in Edinburgh, and men are brought in from wherever in the country. But this this idea of a, uh, an esprit de corps, I think successfully imbued into people from wherever they come from, if they're English or Welsh or Irish and so forth, they're put in a uniform, they find themselves suddenly in a kilt, and they are um, inculcated in this, this idea of tradition, and representing their regiment. Now, turning to the officer call, what sort of what sort of man became an officer in, in the ninth uh, in the pre-war period? Well, James Ferguson himself was laird of Kinmundy in, in Aberdeenshire with four thousand acres. So he's very much from a, an aristocratic class, and as say, an advocate, uh, writer of the signets. Many of his fellow senior officers were very similar. They were also King's Council and so forth. In fact, there's something of a hierarchy in Edinburgh, a geographical hierarchy. James Ferguson was living next to Queen Street Gardens where the headquarters was and actually not far from where the Royal Scots Club stands today. And as you go down the hill to the north, you go through some very uh, nice new town streets such as um, India Street, where Captain Alexander Blair lived. He was later a colonel of the uh, of the battalion. Then you move further north again, you get to where the lieutenants were living, uh, Royal Circus, St. Vincent Street. Then further out, it's the sergeants and Stockbridge. And further afield, out towards uh, Granton and Leith is where the privates were living. But most of these officers were lawyers and accountants. They were professional men, but amateur officers. And that changed very much in 1916, when the battalion became part of the 51st Highland Division, and General Harper wanted uh, professional officers in command. So um, Alexander Blair, who was 50 years old, was removed from command, and William Green came in as a um, as the new commanding officer. He'd formerly been an adjutant to the battalion, so he knew the men. He was a professional soldier, he was a black watch officer. There was therefore a, a great improvement in efficiency and effectiveness of the battalion for, from that point. And then some of the junior officers came up from the ranks, which were certainly uh, breaking some of the, the class divide that it existed when the battalion first being formed. So, for example, Robert Gibson was a, a joiner by trade right from the beginning of the, uh, the battalion. He went to France and Flanders as company sergeant major. He was commissioned in the ninth, 
but six weeks after coming back to his battalion, he was killed at the Somme. And what was the nature of officer men relations um, before the war and actually during the conflict itself? Some of the men, as I, I think I've said, were almost certainly from the same class of men as their officers. So they were sons and brothers. For example, Willie Urquhart commanded number seven platoon, and his brother was a, a private. It was Douglas uh, Urquhart, known to society, Edinburgh as Twinkle. Uh, but he was commissioned to the Sea Force, um, as, as many of these uh, men of this class would have been. And other, other relationships would have already been, people who already known each other because they were in the same workplace, sometimes the boss and the worker. But Bill Hay, who was a coach trimmer, not, for, not from the upper social classes of Edinburgh, he said that there was the lieutenants and even captains up to major, they were on first name term familiarity with their officers because they'd worked in, in uh, similar premises or they knew each other in civilian life for the First World War. So this this was very different to uh, the way, of course, uh, a regular battalion would have been uh, constituted. But I think the officers were well liked and paid attention to the needs of their men. Ferguson and Blair, who were these early lieutenant colonels of the battalion, were very insistent on discipline, which may have well helped the unit in the long run. And then we get the professional class of officer coming in with William Green and so forth, who were very much more effective when it came to uh, prosecuting the war. And did the nature of that sort of, I suppose, family pre-war territorial tradition continue through the, the change that comes in 1916? I think, I think some of it must, because I think um, a lot of the NCOs were still um, um, from that pre-war world and, still, and they still had uh, those relationships I- intact. Um, and although there was a huge turnover in personnel, I think a lot of the characters of the battalion would, would, have, kept, would have kept going um, despite all the changes and the need for increased professionalism. Now, let's talk about the battalion's operational history during the war. So what happened to it uh, once war was declared in 1914? In 1914, they were mobilised, as was the entire territorial force, as, as, which is the reason they had been created in the first place, was for, to be able to call up when the British Expeditionary Force went overseas, and they would defend the United Kingdom. So the Night Force Scots were based in Edinburgh, they had guard duties at East Docks, at a, a new POW camp, at Redford that actually had a lot of uh, German civilians placed into it. They were digging trenches to the southeast of Edinburgh around Liberton Tower because although it seems rather unlikely now that Britain would have been invaded uh, at the time, it was considered a real possibility. So they were building genuine defences, barbed wire entanglements and so forth across the east and south of, of, of the city. Uh, they even furnished a um, machine gun section for an armoured train that was going to run along the coast of East Lothian to protect against invasion. But in 1915, February of 15, they go to France and Flanders. They're there in the Western Front for the, for the duration of the war. Their first major action is at Second Ypres, when they uh, are thrown into uh, the gap that had been created by the German gas attack at Second Ypres and the subsequent defence of the salient, the Ypres salient against German attacks during um, April and May 1915. That a slightly quieter 1915, but in uh, March 1916, they joined the 51st Highland Division, put into the line in the Somme to try and take High Wood, which is a a disastrous attempt. And then at the end of the Somme campaign, the division captures Bowman Hamill, rather to everyone's surprise. And this is the start of the 
the great reputation of the 51st Highland Division. So in 1917, with this reputation to build upon, they have uh, very successful offensives at uh, Arras, at 30, which is the, the Passchendaele campaign, and at uh, Combray, at the end of which, entering 1918, the uh, initiative is in German hands. There's a great manpower shortage in uh, in the British Expeditionary Force. So the 9th are moved from 51st Highland Division to uh, 61st Division, the 2nd South Midland Division, which had not such a a strong reputation, and they were sent w- way down south towards the, the, the right flank of the British, near where the French were at Saint Quentin. The British were concentrating on defending the Channel ports in the north, but actually the Germans had picked Saint Quentin as, as the point they were going to try and penetrate the Allied line. So uh, in March 1918, they had a very hard fight all the way from Saint Quentin back towards the gates of uh, Amiens over a, a period of many days. And then after a very short respite, a second German attack that was at the Lys and near Armentieres meant they were rushed north. And again, they had to um, fight their way back uh, in, in a series of defensive actions where, where you lose casualties, they're often uh, lost forever or they become prisoners of war. And then after the situation stabilized, the Knights were then transferred to the 15th Scottish Division. They were, inverted commas, lent to the French and then moved down to Soissons in the, in the south, had their had their worst day in terms of uh, casualties at uh, Villemontois, but actually this was the, the start of the German offensive petering out and then and then beginning then to turn to retreat. And in the 100 days that led to the armistice, the 15th Division were uh, further north and the 9th were, uh, played a significant part in attacks uh, such as that and then the Veal, which permitted them to cross the Hauptdual Canal um, and they found themselves still very much on the front line uh, as armistice came in November 1918. And so what was the sort of level of casualties that the battalion sustained uh, during the war? Sadly, a, a depressingly uh, familiar sort of number, I think. The, the data set I've been using from the Commonwealth War Graves Commission is for 1,072 deaths, which is slightly more than their full strength when they first started in uh, arriving in France in February 1915, and averages... Uh, more than five deaths a week through, through the war, although the war did get more and more fatal with every passing year. Most of these men were 19-year-olds, some were underage, only 16 or 17. One of them was a 50-year-old at the other end of the scale. He claimed he was uh, 33 when he attested. We can expect somewhere over half of the battalion to have been a casualty of some kind during the course of the war. Um, Walter Blythe rather beat the odds. He'd been wounded six times, but he served right through from 1915 to, through until 1919. Do you have any idea of the n- total number of people who passed through the battalion? The battalion pamphlet published in 1925 estimated 6,000 men had served in theatre with the battalion. And, and so 1,000 casual- deaths out of 6,000 is, is in keeping with, with the uh, statistics for other infantry battalions who served on the Western Front. But I don't have a, a definitive number because even if you add the medal rolls up or add the drafts up, you, you don't get a, a true a true number of their the full numbers that served. And finally, Neil, where can people learn more about the Knight for Royal Scots? I've tried to put some information on my website. I've got my index of personnel there, which is gets larger and larger all the time as I try and find out as much information as I can about people who served in the battalion. 
And of course, uh, my book is published by Pencil in December of 2019. Neil, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much, Tom. Thank you for your time. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.